You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio. What's that outside? <laughs> Santa's sleigh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. From WALT-FM, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman. And what you just heard is the sound of my friend Ben and I goofing around at his dining room table. Ben and I have been goofing around at tables of various kinds for a really long time, ever since we were 18 years old, and we met in college where we started a sketch comedy show on our college's radio station. Those roots of our friendship are still evident whenever we get together. Let's, uh, let's stage a dinner scene. <laughs> a dinner scene for who? Who drinks like that? <laughs> Hello, hello. I'd like to propose a toast. I'd like to propose a toast. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Can't believe you do this for a living. (laughs) Ever since those late nights, filling an hour of airtime in the coveted 2 a.m. time slot on WSRN, goofing around has remained the bedrock of Ben and I's friendship. After college, we moved to New York together and eventually made a go of it as comedians. We had this two-man sketch group called Audience of Two. Very accurate title, same one we used for the radio show. And for a little while there, we were starting to get some traction. We started performing regularly at a comedy club in the city and started touring around to festivals. And this interesting thing happened. As our writing evolved, our sketches became more and more personal. True stories from our actual lives with a thin comedic premise layered over the top of them. So in one of them... Ben decides his life went off the rails when he was 15 and that he should travel back in time to punch his 15-year-old self, played by me, in the face. Which, of course, ends up solving none of adult Ben's problems. In another one, I'm sitting at my job doing tech support for a file-sharing company, and my phone is ringing incessantly. All the callers are voiced by Ben. My character is excited every time the phone rings because I think it's going to be the casting director from the public theater. But when I pick up, I discover that it is, in fact, a trucker wanting to know how to use the company's software to access Wonder Woman porn. Or Ben, who's unemployed and calling to update me on his progress in the latest Legend of Zelda game, as well as to ask what kind of sandwich I think he should get for lunch. We also wrote an entire song about Ben's IKEA couch, the one we used to sit on to write these sketches, in between rounds of playing Mortal Kombat on Ben's PlayStation. Writing about and reckoning with real stuff eventually helped me feel bold enough to start exploring the storytelling community in New York at places like The Moth. And that, in turn, gave me the inspiration to start this show, Family Ghosts. But that only happened in part because of something that happened to Ben and me by extension about eight years ago. But Ben and I had never talked about that thing. So recently, we sat down and recorded a conversation about this pivotal moment in our lives. All right. Uh, look, shut up. <laughs> shut up and let me interview you. Okay, I'll leave. <laughs> okay. All right. Identify yourself to me. My Im- name. Immediately. Okay. I'm Sam Dingman. You have known me for uh, 20 years. Oh, don't really? 2020. We met in 2000, don't Yeah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> all right. Yeah, that's true. Okay. That, that's, that's really even weird. Even for us, that's easy math. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Speak for yourself. Okay. So, so, here's, so here's the thing. I remember going, like, as graduation approached, you wanted to come to New York and be an actor. It's, it's very, very original on my part. <laughs> very original on your part. But I'm from New York. You wanted to come here. I didn't have a better idea. <laughs> you remember this? I said, yes. <laughs> yeah. And so you were like, okay, let's. And I remember you very clearly talking about this in the pretty early going. You were like, it'll be great. We'll go to New York. I'll take acting classes. And you want to do comedy. And I still sort of want to do comedy. We'll take improv classes at Upright Citizens Brigade. Yeah. Well, can I tell you why? Yeah, and I, I, I came well, up with that. And I was going to ask you, why did you come up with that? 
because I called a family friend who uh, is a successful actor to this day. Yeah, she eventually went on to be on SNL and did, but you knew her growing up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the first time I ever performed was on a stage in her backyard that her dad built. And it was actually the, the moment I thought to myself I wanted to be a performer because I walked out onto the stage with a wiffle bat between my legs, sticking <laughs> out behind me like a tail. Oh, okay. And a bucket on my head and a shovel. And I was banging myself on the head with the shovel and all the adults in the neighborhood were sitting there in folding chairs and they all laughed. And I was like, oh, that feels good. That feels good. Um, so how old were you? I think I was five or six. I was pretty young, less than 10. Yeah. So then approximately 10 years later, uh, maybe a little bit more, I w- knew I was going to move to New York and the family friend I don't think she had gotten SNL yet. I think she was still, you know, hoofing it. Yeah. Um, And I called her and I was like, how do you do it? What do you do? And she was like, this is what you do. There's this place called Upright Citizens Brigade. You just go there, watch as much stuff as you can, meet as many people as you can, and take some classes and start making your own stuff and doing your own work. That's how you do it. And I was like, okay, because you know, when you want to move to New York to be a creative person, there's a whole cottage industry built around, here's the playbook. Here's how you do yeah, it. Yeah. And it's all very obtuse and none of it really makes any sense. And I appreciated that what she was articulating was just this very concrete set of steps that you can take. And I was like, I admire her. It's working for her. I'm going to do what she did. Um, so that's where I got the idea. Yeah, yeah. And I remember, so you and I... We get to New York. Mm-hmm. We're living in a very bad apartment in Queens. Uh, eating our uh, Chinese food from this very table, if memory serves. Yeah. And I remember we sign up for, it's around Halloween. It's like October 2004. Mm-hmm. And I only remember this because my girlfriend dumped me. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And like it was. A Sorry t- to laugh. No, I, you can now. <laughs> At the time I was miserable. Yeah. For like a long time. Mm-hmm. which you probably remember pretty well. I but do. It's neither here nor there for, for this story, but I was <laughs> like, I was out of commission. I was like, not yeah. in a good place. Understandably. I mean, yeah. that's a heartbreaking thing. Yeah. But, um, but you and I started class at UCB in like October, 2004. Yeah. And we, we had class with this guy named Owen Burke. Yep. Who, I don't know if he's teaching there still or not, but I remember in the very first class, there was some guy, was it Jason was the guy? don't remember his name some sort of big fratty new jersey dude in like oh, his, yeah. you remember this in like his mid-30s and i think the first scene you ever did in class with this dude oh i remember he <laughs> attempted to put your face in his junk yep uh-huh yeah the idea was that he had picked me up as a hitchhiker and he was giving me a ride to wherever i was going yeah and it you know and because he was sort of a big fratty dude there was only one place this scene was gonna go what if one of them's gay that was basically yeah, what the joke was. Yeah. Um, so to, in his mind, I should clarify. <laughs> yeah, you were, not, you, were, you were not on board. Well, I mean, I, I, it was, you know. Well, I, you were as on board as you could be under the circumstances. I was trying to go, I was trying to do what a person in that situation would have done, right? Like, uh, as my acting professor at Swarthmore would have said to uh, – behave truthfully under imaginary given circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so he, you know, he started like pulling my head down towards his crotch. And uh, I believe what I said was I like popped my head up and I was like, I believe there's been a misunderstanding. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot that. Uh, (laughs) Actually, in my memory of it, we, we ended up having a decent scene. Afterwards. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it it could have gone a lot worse for all parties involved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't. I only remember truthfully. I only remember the the fact that he grabbed you by the head and was like, "Observe my nutsack." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, not to defend this guy necessarily, because obviously, uh, you know, he probably was not super well intentioned in terms of the joke that he was making. But I think the 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 thing that he did do that I remember personally actually being scared to do a lot in those early classes is he started by making like a 
giant choice. He sure did. Like a huge, bold choice that, uh, you know, dictates the circumstances that the scene is now going to happen in. Um, so in that sense, you know, he wasn't far off from the kinds of things they were teaching us. Yeah, in that sense. I mean, and then we, uh, I finished out like the five levels at the time that were at UCB, but like you, you stopped around three, two or three. Well, what happened for me and sort of my first, I don't know where you're going with this necessarily, but my first realization that this whole comedic, there might be something fishy about this whole comedic business model was you and I went through the first three levels of classes, three eight-week classes um, at Upright Citizens Brigade. And then I, two things happened. One is that I started making less money because I was working at a hotel and I was a bellman. So it was tip-based and travel is seasonal. So all of a sudden I wasn't making as much money. And I really wanted to take a scene study class, like a traditional acting class. Yeah. Because I hadn't done that since I moved to New York. And at this point it had been, uh, I think we'd been in New York for eight months, a year, something like that. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, I'll just take a little hiatus and I'll go and take this scene study class, which I did. And that was great. And then I realized that a lot of people, that kind of the next step in that, roadmap that Casey had laid out for me was, well, you have to kind of graduate from the program at UCB. And then a lot of people are able to get representation from that. At least that was my impression at the time. Yeah. That turned out not to be true. I think it was true for some people. Yeah. It certainly wasn't for either of us. And the idea I suppose was that, uh, you know, there would be like a showcase. I don't remember how I thought it worked, but I had an idea that that's how it worked. And representation at that time, I remember being the be-all, end-all. Like, if you want to have a career as a performer, you got to have an agent. And so I did a lot of, in retrospect, very embarrassing things yeah. <laughs> to try to get an agent, including I had a set of postcards with my headshot on them. I remember. And... I had those, too, later. Yeah. Yeah. And then I would send them in to agents that I wanted to work with or casting directors. And I would draw a little dialogue balloon coming out of my mouth. Oh no. That said, hello, Don Buckwald or whatever the person's (laughs) name was. Um, Don Buckwald, a real guy. Yeah. He's a real guy. Uh, So did he write you a speech balloon back? No, I never heard back from any of these people. (laughs) Not a single (laughs) one. Oh, it's really sad to think back on that. Anyway. um, So it had been at most a year since the level three class. Yeah. But in the, in the intervening time, you and I had started um, doing sketch comedy as audience of two. Mm-hmm. We had, you had started taking class, you had finished the UCB program and you had started at the People's Improv Theater. Or the pit, as, it, as it's known. Yep. And you had entered us as a sketch group in uh, something called Sketchprov, yeah. which is, was a festival of improv groups and sketch groups at the pit where in like the first rounds, the improv groups do improv and the sketch groups do sketch. And then in the last round, one improv group remains and one sketch group remains and they have to switch hats. It was, it was such a weird format. So hold on, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little. Well, no, no, hold on. Yeah. Cause this goes back to UCB. Okay. So we won. Yeah, we did. Uh, which was awesome. It was a great feeling. We had a, we had a series of really great shows and, um, it was really, really cool to, uh, you know, it's silly to turn comedy or art into a competition, but we won this particular made-up competition. And so then I was really feeling a strong desire to get back to comedy. And so I called UCB and I said, I'd like to pick up classes again. I'd like to enroll in level four. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, you would have to start over again. You'd have to go back to level one. How? And there were justification was that it had just been a really long time or what they said our curriculum has evolved oh fuck you and i remember thinking what did you reinvent comedy which in retrospect their answer would have been like actually yes we did <laughs> but yeah. i felt like what, this is a giant ripoff I, it's not like i haven't been performing and doing comedy in the intervening time i took the first three levels with you you and I were performing some semi-regularly around the city as a sketch group at that point, and we had just won this competitive amongst New York comedy groups festival at 
a theater that was notionally on the level of UCB. Notional, I, notionally. I mean, that's that's the thing. There was some, well, whatever. That's. But I, you yeah. know, I said all that to them and they were like, well, but, um, you know, the UCB approach is a very unique and particular thing. And I was like, I'm not going to go back to level one. That's ridiculous. And they were like, well, I guess you can't study here. Well, and, and at 300 bucks a level of class. Yeah. So then I called the pit and I said, hey, I've done the first three levels at UCB. Ben and I just won this festival at your theater. Could I enroll in level three? I, I, was, I was like willing to go back a level. Um, and they were like, yeah, sure, just sign up. Yeah. So that's why I switched. But it was, it was so, cl- in retrospect, I thought that was them being cool and generous. But in retrospect, I'm sure that was them like, oh, we're going to poach a UCB person. You know, who knows? I mean, we were never really UCB people like UCB barely knew we existed, which but they didn't. The pit didn't know that the pit didn't know that either. So what you're bringing up gets into sort of a thing. There was this weird thing about like there was sort of this weird tribalism about like theater loyalty. Like if you were a pit person, like it was frowned upon to go to UCB. And if you were a UCB person, it was frowned upon to go to the pit. Oh, it's beyond frowned upon. It would, it would be openly said in UCB classes that that theater has the wrong approach to comedy. Did you have that happen? I actually didn't have that yeah. happen. Yeah. yeah. I, I heard that said. That That is the incorrect approach to comedy. This the, the way we do it here, this idea of game, this is the way comedy is done. This is the way to teach it. And that's if you're so learning... That's so weird. I, I didn't... I don't remember that, but that's that sucks. They didn't... You know, it, it was almost like... The, it was kind of tribalistic or diplomatic. They, they basically didn't recognize the existence of... <laughs> And it was just ridiculous that there was so much imaginary acrimony between the three. Because well, I don't think it was imaginary for them, but it it trickled down to a lot of people who didn't have skin in that game. I, ju- I guess I just mean like made up differences because yeah. they were all three teaching a very, very similar form of improv comedy. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. it was just about the method, the instructional methodology that there was this difference, and it turned into this giant rivalry. And because I think UCB came out of the gate the fastest, and as you said, the people who started it had gotten that Comedy Central show, it also had and maintained this cachet as, like, that's the real one. That's the one where people go through there and then get on TV or get in movies. Yeah, like, certainly, I mean, I don't know what it was like right when it first started, but certainly when by the time you and I came along, the book was like, go to UCB, get famous. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, that's and that's how they sold themselves. Well, and they had <laughs> to continue using weirdly political terminology. They had a record to campaign on, you know. Yeah, like they had gotten a show on Comedy Central. Casey, got shortly after the time that we got to New York, got on SNL. People were getting commercials. People were getting you know sort of lower profile gigs in various places. They were getting work. I mean, when we were there, just going to see shows and stuff. Two people just off the top of my head who you could see doing, you know, very experimental improv comedy, let's say. Sure. Were Jack McBrayer. Yep. And Rob Hubel. Yep. And Chris Gethard. Yep. I mean, it's actually a pretty long list of people who continue to be extremely out, prominent. They're out there in the mix. Donald Glover was there. Aziz Ansari was there. Yeah. Um, Pete Holmes. Pete Holmes, sure. Yeah. At the time, it was a real big thing. Ellie Kemper. Ellie Kemper. Yeah. I mean, it's actually, it's it's a pretty, it's not a tough list to make. No. Um, and, the, you know, so on uh, there was that too. And so there was always sort of, when you and I ended up at the pit for our own reasons, there was sort of this underdog thing going yeah. on that we sort of like leaned into. I certainly leaned into, which was like, we'll show those guys. We'll show <laughs> those cool kids at UCB. Well, and there's, I mean, and I, it was like, how dumb is that? What a waste of our time to, to think in like adversarial terms. It's pretty dumb, but this is also at a time in our life when we were really looking for stuff to hold on to. Yeah. And I mean, just because of the age that we were, but also because of the, um, type of work and career that we at that point wanted to have there's there's nothing to hold on to to make you feel like you're making any progress or doing anything that's at all relevant so if a place be it a theater or a church (laughs) says um this is the way the world works 
look, these people have gone on to do these things, um, slash we share some DNA with the place where the people have gone on to do these things, and this is the correct way to do it, and just focus on this, and we've decided arbitrarily that there are five levels of improv through which you must rise, and we've created these competitions and festivals and stuff, it gives you something to hold on to. It makes you feel like you're progressing through a means to a creative career. Yeah. Um, and that that was very significant at the time. My conversation with Ben continues in just a minute after a quick word from our sponsors. So, I mean, let's let's talk a little bit like about the pit because that's where we ended up yeah. doing by far the majority of our stuff. Because it was smaller and newer, everybody there was sort of, there was kind of a feeling of let's put on a show in the old barn kind of thing, <laughs> right? And well, let's also consider the fact that Ali, and there's a lot to say about Ali. Sure is. But he's a pretty smart guy, particularly from a business standpoint. And it's not an accident that he called it the people's improv theater when he was in competition with the upright citizens brigade. Do you think that's really on purpose? I, just, I think that was a hundred percent on purpose. I just always assumed that was sort of half baked Ali philosophy crap. I don't think so. I don't think so. Cause there was a lot of half baked Ali philosophy crap. Sure. But his color scheme was always like red with big stars. The whole thing was supposed to be about like the people's party, like the, I heard our colors were red and black because he found some red curtains in the garbage. And because Ali is cheap, he was like, great, we have red curtains. Now we're going to pattern the whole theater red about that. Maybe it's a coincidence yeah. that these things synced up pretty well. I don't think it's a coincidence. Yeah. Okay. I also think it's entirely possible that he built a philosophy around free curtains. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You that, know. That's, I think, maybe where the truth lies. But, yeah. anyway. but either way, that I don't think the the sen- the sensibility that you're describing it didn't come from nothing the yeah. the sense that it's like hey this is the place where anybody can kind of show up and try something and we'll all build it together and it's a lot more fluid and open and less hierarchical and um you know that was encouraged that was not well so here's a thing so here is why i ended up at that theater i never felt like i was really allowed at ucb i sort of always had the sense that I was just kind of hanging out around the edges and hoping the cool kids would notice me. Oh yeah. And I ended up, I, and I remember seeing online the pit, someone at the pit had posted on some social media channel or other that, you know, like a video of like the pit Christmas party. Hmm. And I remember sitting in my room and watching this and thinking, Oh my God, those people love each other. Hmm. Those people are so happy to be hanging out with each other. They're like giving out like jokey awards and they're like giving speeches and they're like goofing around. And I wish I had something like that Mm -hmm. in my life. And I didn't, I felt very alone. I had no girlfriend (laughs) as previously stated, previously stated. I had, uh, you know, I didn't feel like UCB was going anywhere. I was living with a roommate. I didn't like very much after no longer living with you. Um, (laughs) because when we lived together, we didn't like each other. We didn't like each other very much. We almost killed each other. Yeah. But, and it just, it was really attractive and really Mm -hmm. powerful. And so I said to myself like that night, I'm going to start hanging out at this place and taking classes Mm -hmm. because I feel like I could actually be a part of something there. Mm Mm-hmm. And I got in and I started taking classes and I started making friends. Happened pretty fast in my memory. You were in the mix pretty quickly. There was no, they needed bodies. Well, and, and you were, I hope this is okay to say, Yeah. you at that time didn't have a lot else going on. No, I had nothing else going on. And in a community that incentivizes diving all the way in right away and a theater that was just kind of getting off the ground and needed people to get in and become evangelists. Um, and I evangelized hard. You did. You did real hard. I got you in. You did. 
I talked to anybody who would listen on a lot of people who wouldn't about how awesome that theater was. Yeah. Um, and what, that's one of the things actually that I feel bad about in retrospect. You feel bad about it? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like I sort of became a glorified door knocker. Well, I don't know. I, that not to deny your feelings, but, um, you know, at the time it was something that was genuinely bringing you a lot of happiness. And it's not like you were saying to people, your life is bad. Come to this place and it will become good. <laughs> right. It worked for me. It can work for you. You weren't doing that. You were saying, you know, I'm having a great time at this theater. You should come by sometime or, Oh, you're interested in, in doing this kind of work. Why don't you come check out the pit? That's pretty benign. I think. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess so here's the thing. So let's flash forward a little because okay. this is where this is going to end up eventually, which is it's now three or four years after I've been there. Yeah. Uh, you have, you are now sort of in the mix of the theater as well. You and I have been placed on a house team there. We're performing together. Yep. We're doing some good shows. I start getting really frustrated all the time. You know, like I don't remember what it was like other things in my life weren't going very well. My parents had a lot of health problems. That was very stressful. My career both on stage and off was non-existent. You know, I was like really frustrated about those things. I started having anxiety attacks you know, like shit like that. And I just remember going to the theater and being really angry all the time, you know, and like comparing myself constantly. The theater had gotten bigger at that point. Like it. Yeah. I mean, depending how far ahead we're jumping now, you know, it was, it had gone from literally a loft above a sushi restaurant to with multiple health code violations (laughs) to, um, a hundred seat theater. And then another 80 seat black box in the basement. And yeah, a full bar and yeah. Um, yeah. So the physical place was bigger, but also the community was a lot bigger. Yeah. Like I, I, all of a sudden it had sort of gone from about like maybe two dozen people who I knew all of them and I knew how long they had been there to a bunch of people where every week I was like, I don't, I've never seen that person before, mm-hmm. you know? And I, st- and they, they also went through a couple different artistic directors and our people who had known you and me and known our work sort of left because they either got fed up with Ali or they got offered more money or they just didn't want to do the job anymore. Mm-hmm. And a new guy came in who shall remain nameless, but I sort of felt like he didn't really know us and didn't really care as much about what we were doing. And I felt like we sort of got sidelined. I felt like I in particular got sort of sidelined. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of spent, I don't know if I knew this necessarily. Did you not? Because I, I just started feeling really jealous of anyone at the theater who was doing good work and who was like... Well, getting, that I remember. Yeah. And who was like getting acclaim. Yeah. And like I really started being like what... like And like actively grousing to you and other people in earshot about like... Yes. Yeah. I do remember. I remember that it started to get a little bit... I mean, I think this is okay to say because we had conversations about it at, at the time where yeah. it was like, you got to stop complaining about this stuff when other people are around because yeah it's it's not a good look yeah it wasn't a good look and i think it got me in trouble i think it did i mean you know i think i've told you before that um at the time it only happened once or twice but people would make little side comments to me like you know you should tell ben to watch it really yeah really i don't remember that Mm mm-hmm off the record, who were those people? <laughs> um, I'll be honest. I, I don't actually remember. Yeah. I, I just remember it. Um, I just remember it happening a couple wow. times. Wow. I didn't know that, although it doesn't surprise me. I mean, you were, you were going through a lot. You know, you were, we at that point were um, in the twilight of our 20s. <laughs> Very much the twilight, yeah. And I think it's fair to say that a life in comedy hadn't gone where we wanted it to go. Yep. And that's one of those things. I mean, this is a sort of pet bugaboo of mine, but that's, that's a, that's a particular, the realization that a creative career path isn't going to go the way you want it to go is something that kind of gets made fun of a lot and dismissed in a lot of culture, but it's actually a really crushing thing to experience. Well, it's a thing that comedians and actors and writers like to, 
make comedy and write and act about because it's happened to them somewhere. Yeah. And I think there's a weird thing in culture. Like we love to hear the hard luck stories of the people who ended up making it, but the people who don't make it, we like to write a story in our head. That's like, well, they were delusional from the beginning and it's hilarious that they even tried. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we don't really have a lot of room. Yeah. And the truth is, is somewhere in the middle, or at least I hope it is. I mean, I hope we weren't delusional from the beginning, but no, um, we have ample evidence that we weren't delusional. I mean, we got opportunities to do cool things and we did a lot of really awesome stuff. Yeah. Um, But but it's also fair to say that it hadn't, gone the way that we hoped and you know another thing i'm hearing you say which i had never really considered before and i you know i don't want to name your feelings about it but i wonder if this is true is this thing that had given you meaning in a moment when you needed meaning and structure all of a sudden seemed to represent the same thing to a whole bunch of other people yeah that so i can imagine that you know, to be overly simplistic about it, there was a time when it made you feel special. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm not special anymore. No, that was a huge thing. And I had no idea how to process that. Well, and at the time you didn't have, I was fortunate, I suppose, in the sense that I had, I really didn't like the job that I had at that point, but I had a full-time job and. Yeah, which I did not have. That was. (laughs) By the way. Well, so there was a built-in. Yeah motivation in my life to even if i wanted creative work to be my main focus i actually was functionally blocked from letting that be the case because i had this other thing that i had to do um and i was in the midst of my own debate about what should be getting more time and focus and energy and effort so it was a little bit different for you 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 had located a significant amount of meaning on this one thing that well, was now changing well and i'll go one step further i had pegged my whole sense of self-worth to this mm-hmm. to doing comedy and being successful at it yeah. and once and when i started to plateau i got really frustrated mm-hmm. and when i saw other people who i thought hadn't put in as many hours as me being successful mm-hmm. which by the way will happen a lot if you're in the arts because <laughs> that's just the nature of the beast i i, I you know i felt i felt like they were taking my spot. Right. And that's a real fucked up thing to think. Yeah. But, but you see that now, but it, it's also understandable that in the midst of it, it would, it feels like your, your sense of self is under attack. Yeah. And yeah. you're good. People don't react rationally when that happens. I was certainly not reacting rationally. I got, I was, I remember, I mean, just in my life, let alone at the theater, but at the theater too, I spent every minute I was there angry or sad. Mm. Like I was just, you know, and I was like, I was like making mental lists of like who was on my side and who wasn't. Well, I do remember that the moment for me that I began to realize that it was time for you to make a change was we were in this group, local 154 and one of the things about being in one on one of these teams um is that there was a review every year yep and the <laughs> what did they call the ensemble committee the ensemble committee yes would um have these private meetings nobody ever knew when they happened or where they happened where they would discuss the work of all the teams and then word would reach you of what their feedback was and in retrospect it's pretty weird that somebody from the ensemble committee didn't just come talk to you you had it, it got like filtered down through intermediaries it was weird i well eventually someone did talk to me but hold on you finish your thought and i remember that so part of that was we would get group feedback and another part was uh we would get individual feedback yeah and i remember that you received what i think it's fair to say in retrospect was decently constructive feedback about you know leave room for other people to talk more in scenes or, or something like that. I don't remember what the actual feedback was. It was, it wasn't actually so much about what I was doing in scenes. It was, they were just sort of like what I was told essentially was I was on the bubble, but that's, mm-hmm. if you remember what happened after that, I quit. Cause, um, yeah, I do remember that. Cause I did, I did some soul searching. Cause I mean, you know, it was sort of like a stages of grief thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like, first it was like anger, then it was denial, then it was blame or what, I don't know what the actual stages are, but it was like, I went through these various points where I was basically trying to blame other people for this. Yeah. You know, and eventually I was like, actually, 
some of this behavior is my fault. Quite a lot of it is my fault. Yeah. And some of it is that I'm not enjoying this anymore. Yeah. Which credit to you for eventually recognizing that. Um, but can we back up for a second? Because you're being very hard on yourself in this conversation. And I've had a long time to think about this. Yeah. In some ways, I mean, you, again, I think it's fair to say you behaved in some ways that weren't good. Um, but I think we also need to talk about the extremely messed up incentive structure under which you're operating when you are, I mean, forget, we've already talked a little bit about the structure of being a student, but let's say you have the experience that you and I were fortunate enough to have, which is that you get through the classes and you audition to be placed on one of the house improv ensembles. Um, and that means that you have a guaranteed weekly performance slot at this theater. Right. Now, at the pit, that perform that those shows were free to the public, but it was very obvious that it was like, yeah, the show is free, but come buy beer at the bar. Right. right. It, this is how the this is how the theater made its money. Yeah. Um, once you're placed on this team, it's required that you rehearse at least once a week, and it is very strongly suggested that you rehearse at a rehearsal studio that is owned by the same guy who owns the theater. Right. You are required to hire a coach from an approved list yep. provided also by the theater. Yep. Everyone, are, everyone on that list is someone who performs at the theater. You are required to take a group photo out of your, by, own, out by, of a your own. by a professional photographer. All of this is out of pocket. Yep. The theater is making money. But let's just call a spade a spade. The theater is making money off of your labor and you are actually paying to do the work. Yeah. You're not paid for the show. There's no compensation for the shows. None. You have to pay for the rehearsal space yourself. You have to pay for the coach yourself. Um, and, and then the expectation from the theater is that your loyalty is to the theater. Because the value proposition is if you perform here, you might get noticed and get to go perform somewhere else where you will get paid. So actually, your loyalty should be to yourself and your own interest and well-being. But because the theater is operating in this economic system that is very good at exploiting artists for their loyalty and a sense of relevance and meaning, you those wires get crossed real hard. Yeah. And I think the break that you're describing was a moment where those wires were crossed and like there was a snap, you know, like the, I don't know enough about electricity to describe this well, but um, it makes sense that you found yourself in a very loaded emotional situation because in addition to whatever personal stuff was going on, you were being exploited. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's true. But what I, I'm hard about my on myself about is I mean one I feel badly for behaving like a jerk to people for reasons that were not their fault sure. you know so I feel bad about that but also I'm excited for them all to hear this <laughs> there's a couple of them who probably are perfectly happy not to hear from me yeah, it's fine um, it's fine but the other thing too is what I am the most angry about is that I feel like I got conned for a really long time well, it is a con. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> the, the road to being prosecuted for running a pyramid scheme <laughs> is littered with, uh, what do they call it? Uh, vertically integrated marketing. Um, yeah, multi-level marketing. Multi-level marketing, yeah. So MLMs, right? I think so. So I'm not going to sit here and call the People's Improv Theater or Upright Citizens Brigade or any other place a multi-level marketing scheme. But I will say that they share a lot of characteristics. It's, it's, it's a lot closer than you'd like. And let's just look at it. In all of those MLMs, there's a way to get involved free or very low cost, right? We'll send you a free sample. At all these places, there's level zero or a jam 
or something. Like, yeah. just come, just come check it out, you know? Yeah. Just come take a free class. And then if you like it, you can pay. And, you're, and then your reward for paying and then completing the thing, your principal reward yeah. is to get to pay for the next thing. And then, then they, they come to you and they say, hey, you know, I think you're really getting the hang of this. Why don't you go up to the next level? Mm-hmm. Pay a little bit more money. It's almost as though there were multiple multi-levels. levels. Yes. <laughs> and then you make it to the top level. And then they say... Um, well, we really, uh, we really think you're, you know, you've mastered this performance style and we'd like to make you an official performer. But what are you at that point? Uh, you're basically a brand ambassador. Cause the other thing that those shows that we did on Wednesday nights that were free, quote unquote, they were, they were, they were PR, they were advertisement to the other people who were interested in improv and saw improv as a way to get on TV you can go see these shows for free and it's a way of saying, I got to sign up. I got to take the classes here. And the way that place makes money is from the classes and the beer. Yeah. So you become, you're, you're basically paying them to advertise their service. I want to back up for a second <laughs> uh, before I sound too much like a raving conspiracy theory lunatic. But well, for what it's worth, I agree with you on this completely. Yeah. As you and I have discussed a, a number of times. Right. But it is a wonderful thing for artistic institutions to find a way to provide art to audiences for free or low cost. That's a very valuable thing. And I am sure that that was somewhere in the thought process of Ali and of the UCB people and of Armando and all these folks too. Like there's a reason part of this was that I'm sure they had some deeply held conviction that they wanted to be able to make these shows available to people to watch who didn't have a lot of money to spend to come and be creatively inspired and get involved. But the incentive structures were, and maybe still are really, really, really lopsided and gross. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're performing on a weekly basis at a theater that's making money from the performance. Maybe you ought to get some money. And the theater is publicly marketing you to the city as one of its premier offerings. You should be paid. Like, yeah, your, your, your work, you, you should be compensated for the work you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I mean, so that wasn't happening. I mean, it, yeah, it, it, the whole ecosystem is very weird. Oh, God, someone's calling me. <laughs> it's Ali Farnakian. How did he know? No, he's not. It's someone purportedly from New Smyrna Beach, Florida, but I bet that's not really where they're from. <laughs> Who do you know in the old smear? Uh, nobody. I'm not to smear the smear, but I'm pretty sure that pretty sure that I don't know a single person there. Bobby Bagelsmith. <laughs> Bobby Bagelsmith. He ratted me out to the ensemble committee. <laughs> I thought we weren't going to name him. I thought we weren't going to name him. Bobby, how you doing these days? <laughs> still doing that, uh, still doing the, uh, pulling people's into the, pulling people's heads into your crotch bit. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I just feel like this point is really important that basically the theater has established itself as the place that gives you your creative relevance mm-hmm. and they have demanded in exchange for that, your fealty to their uh, methodology, their pedagogy, their um, position within the larger comedic universe. But they haven't really given you any incentive to stay there because they know that it's such an unstable industry that you don't really have a better option. So they don't have to really offer you much. Yeah. So that means that when your position in that nebulous structure slips it's not just you don't really have the option of saying well i'll just go do comedy at this other theater you're you're literally teetering on the abyss Mm -hmm. of irrelevance yeah you need a place to do your shit if you lose your position there you have nothing Mm -hmm. and that is a really intense emotional headspace to be in yeah so i just feel like that's important context to add to the other stuff that was happening for you at the time yeah and i think that's true but it didn't change the fact that as i was sort of wrestling with all this stuff i felt like 
I had really become somebody I didn't like very much. Uh-huh. You know, I really, really, really was not happy. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't just unhappy with the theater. I mean, I just, I just didn't like what it was doing to me. You mm-hmm. know, I, I really, I didn't like being a guy who, you know, there's this one sketch group who shall also remain nameless, who, as you recall, I hated, like really hated. And they played a promo before every one of our shows with a song in it that I really hated. That was one of the things that would just set me off. And I would just rant. Literally and, before you're about to walk on a stage. Literally before I'm about to walk on a stage and supposed to be giving people like a good time and enjoying right. myself. Mm-hmm. I would just rant and rave about how much I hated these people. Yeah. And <laughs> who does that? What kind of asshole is so insecure that he can't get over that? And frankly, if people did come to you, as apparently they did, to say, hey, Ben, ben has to dial it back. Like, those people are completely right. I acted terribly. And when I realized that that was the kind of person I was now, I hated that those things had become so important to me that I had lost track of what it was like to treat other people decently. And that's when I knew I had to quit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I just, uh, well, one thing is, I don't want to make you feel like this was a constant, I think it happened, it happened one, maybe two times. Two, that, that's that somebody that's came to more me. times than it should happen. Um, and, I, th- I also want you to hear in this that they were doing that because they were looking out for you, not because they were trying to take you out. Yeah. They, they were no, doing it because they were like, I know Ben isn't really, I know this is not Ben at his best. Um, and I just want to like let you know, because I know you can maybe get through to him about this stuff. And so yeah. they had good intentions. No, I understand. But they're, they're, they're at the same time. They're not wrong. They're not wrong. But the other thing is, I mean, you have to be, a little bit insecure or anywhere from a little bit to a lot insecure to want to be an artist in the first place. And whether it was explicit or not, that is a vulnerability that people who try to build businesses around art are all exploiting on some level. Yeah. And some of it is not necessarily even all that sinister. Some of it is just, it's, it's kind of a way because insecure people also tend to be a little bit dysfunctional when they are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And, you know, if there was not some kind of incentive structure in place to make dysfunctional, insecure people functional and make things, we wouldn't have beautiful things. So I'm not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater here. Right. But this particular economic and creative environment, uh, you're not the only one who ended up in a rough spot. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, I can't control what happened to other people. I can control what happened to me. Sure. You know, but we're not here to indict you for your behavior, you know? Well, maybe you're not. (laughs) (laughs) What have I signed up for? I don't know. (laughs) But you got to remember, man, like around the time we were there, there were, there were people who were living in the storeroom at the theater. There were? I can think of at least three. Wow. That I know of. Um, it was just kind of, and you know, this is a, this is a fairly decent act on Ali's part because he knew it was happening. Um, they didn't have a place to live. Yeah. So he would let them sleep in the stock room at night at the theater. Um, I don't know if I knew that. Yeah. Um, and you would periodically hear stories about people who kind of weren't around the theater anymore. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it was because they decided they didn't want to do comedy. And sometimes it was because they um, fell victim to some mental health issues that were already operational, obviously, mm-hmm. at the time they were at the theater. But that I think it's fair to say this messed up structure at the theater probably exacerbated to some extent. Yeah. Why do you quit? I quit because I knew that there was a different form of art that I wanted to be making. And it was very, and it didn't come as easily to me. I don't mean to sound like improv came easily to me, but... I was a little bit naturally inclined towards improv because it was an art form based on 
something that I had been doing ever since I was a little kid, which is walking across a stage with a wiffle bat between my legs, you know? Right. Um, that, that's always just been in me and, and something that I have craved doing and improv really celebrates and lifts that up. Right. Like there's other skills that get built on top of that, but having that as a built in thing helps you in improv. Um, and so I think on some level I was able to make my way through the made up structure of improv and be buoyed by that. So to some extent, I felt like um, I was starting to observe some of these similar dynamics and didn't feel totally... It's in retrospect that I have become a little bit more morally outraged about them, but at the time it was just sort of unsettling and and didn't totally feel great. Mm -hmm. And I real... But but the main thing was that there were these other forms of creative expression that I wanted to be doing instead. And at the time, I had, as I said, this full-time job that was fairly demanding. And I was in a committed relationship. And that meant that my time outside the job and outside of time that I was spending with my partner, I wanted to be using that time. If I was going to be using that time to do creative work that I wasn't being paid for, um, I wanted it to be really soul-filling and nourishing and <clears throat> um, something that made me feel, since my job didn't really make me feel like I was the person I want to be in my life, uh, and increasingly my relationship did not make me feel that either, um, I wanted the time that I was giving to myself to be spent doing something that felt really good to do. And improv partially because of the environment that we've been talking about had stopped feeling that way. And also, honestly, and this is just my taste, this has, this is not any improv theater's fault, I reached a point where I felt like I don't, I have a little bit of a problem with the idea that we're performing something that we haven't planned for an audience. Which which is a real problem if you're going to be doing improv. It, it just... That's not to say there aren't people who are masterful at it and who are are capable of creating performances that are truly transcendent. It is not as replicable a an artistic model as I think a lot of people feel like it is. <laughs> yeah. No. It, it, um, I think. I mean. You, I yeah. mean, just ask yourself, non-improv person listening to this, has your friend ever said to you, hey, do you want to come see my improv show? And has your thought been, oh boy, I'd love to. You go because it's your friend and you want to support them doing their weird thing. I felt, I reached a point where I felt like by doing improv, I was inviting people to come watch me practice for something better that might one day exist, except the better thing never exists because it's improv. Yeah. And yeah. And there, there are people who can make that happen, but there's, there's a lot fewer of them than. Yeah. The whole, the, the theaters wouldn't exist if people knew how few of those people there actually are. Yeah. And again, that that's my personal creative taste. It's not an indictment of an improv theater. Yeah. Like, and, and, and by the way, I don't think you or I were either one of those people who could, who could consistently do that. No, no. I, yeah. and, and if I was, maybe I would have felt differently about it, but I also want to say, uh, is there a way to say this without sounding pretentious? Probably not. I came to improv from theater. Yeah. And the idea, I'm not saying theater is superior to improv. This was just my training and my taste. You improvise a lot in theater work as a way of discovering components of a finished product that you're building that you can incorporate into that finished product. It's a means to an end. It is not itself the end. And so I, because that's how I came to improv, I always thought of improv as a second-class creative citizen. Always. Yeah. And I don't think anything was ever going to change that. Yeah. You want to play some Mortal Kombat? Let's do it. Okay. (laughs) Thank you, Ben, for 20 years and counting of Mortal Kombat and raggedly rendered dinner scenes. In the time since Ben and I recorded this conversation, the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York has permanently closed, prompting a spirited reconsideration 
of its legacy. If you're interested in reading more about it, I highly recommend the reporting of Seth Simons. As of this recording, the People's Improv Theater is still active. Now, folks, as you may recall, on last week's bonus episode, I told you I would have more news for you about the new season of Family Ghosts. As I mentioned, when Family Ghosts comes back with new episodes in January, the show will be released on a regular schedule, without breaks. And when you heard me say that, perhaps you, being an alert and discerning listener, asked yourself, wait, what does he mean by regular schedule? And the answer to that question, Ghost Family, is bi-weekly. That means every month, starting on January 21st, you will get two all-new episodes of Family Ghosts running all the way through the end of 2021. Now, perhaps upon hearing that news, you're asking yourself another question, which is, two shows a month? That sounds time-consuming and expensive. How on earth is Sam going to manage that? I'm so glad you asked, because you're right. Making Family Ghosts at the level of quality you expect from us requires a lot of long hours, late nights, and resources. Even though you sometimes hear ads during the breaks in our episodes, the money that we earn from those sponsorships, while it is greatly appreciated, doesn't even begin to cover our production expenses. So to stay afloat, we rely on the Kindred Spirits, our community of supporters on Patreon. For just $5 a month, Kindred Spirits get early access to all of our stories, ad-free versions of all of our episodes, and access to bonus episodes featuring behind-the-scenes interviews, conversations with other artists and storytellers whose work overlaps with the themes of our show, and a whole lot more. Best of all, Kindred Spirits get the satisfaction of knowing that their support keeps this show in your headphones. If you have the means, please consider joining them at patreon.com familyghosts. And either way, thank you, as always, for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another bonus episode and more exciting news about season four, right here on Family Ghosts, where every house is haunted. Okay, so we do our intro spiel. Sitting on a couch. It's from Ikea, it's called Cleepon, it's fucking comfortable as shit, it's a white couch, not ethnically, then again it's from Sweden, so the odds are good, just like the meatballs, they aren't white, but they are delicious, so think about that, think about that. Sitting on clip-on, wearing a clip-on tie Eating some meatballs and Think about America Think of all the couches Think of all the meatballs Think of them fighting Think of them fucking Fucking each other Making meatball children But don't get freaked out Cause you made it up yourself Sitting on your couch just another Monday And your neighbor is a ghost Oh, think about that She's a fucking ghost Is she gonna kill you? Is she gonna come through the wall While you're sitting on your couch? She probably will Cause ghosts can do that And they hate the living Think about that Think of all the living Oh, that we do Every single day, yeah, think about time machines, think about dinosaurs, or think about riding one, to escape your doubt, oh, ride that dinosaur. Soaring high above the clouds, dinosaur. Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, ride that dinosaur. To escape the ghost, 
Get your door, 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 About your couch, now it's your throne, and you are the king or the queen of your studio apartment.